But I think that there are a lot of really great and really inspiring examples of cities making strides on transit. I'm Laura Whitley. In this episode of The Next Stop, the link between better buses and better cities. The Next Stop. The Next Stop. The Next Stop. Metro's podcast. From slowing climate change to improving the quality of life for everyone, addressing some of our largest public policy challenges are closely linked with improving a service that for years many communities have treated as an afterthought, the bus. Stephen Higashide, Director of Research for the National Foundation Transit Center and author of the recently released book, Better Buses, Better Cities, is here to discuss the topic. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. So uh, I have to ask before we get started or as we're getting started, what route did you uh, take in this morning? Oh, you know, I just hopped on the red line. Uh, My hotel is extremely convenient in the museum district. Very short trip. Right, right. That convenience that you talk about, uh, that reliability, uh, I know is something that um, when I talk with writers or even utilize public transit myself, um, that's really key and, and gets to the heart of the first question is at a very basic level, what have you found is really needed to get people to ride the bus? Yeah, so people often talk about the stigma of the bus or they believe that oh we have to make buses sexy we have to market the bus in the new in a new way when what it really comes down to is providing frequent fast reliable service that you can walk to that's affordable and that is a dignified experience that gives you a place to wait um, it's really as simple as that and it makes transit attractive whether you're talking about rail or buses Um, when you make bus service convenient and attractive for people, you know, the stigma goes away very quickly and ridership uh, starts to increase. It sounds like what you're saying is it it doesn't have to be any type of of vehicle that looks special. It's just about getting people where they need to go. That's right. You know, the most important thing when it comes to, um, you know, you, you can talk about like, branding the bus in a new way, but really the important thing is having a great product to market in the first place. Um, And that's something that Houston actually can teach a lot of other cities. The 2015 bus network redesign brought frequent bus service to many neighborhoods that hadn't had it before, uh, and you can see the impact on overall system ridership. Absolutely. And the other thing I know that you've looked into is it's not necessarily a conversation about trains versus bus. Uh, It's about a system that works well together, and that's something that the reimagining campaign addressed. Right. It really comes down to building an integrated system. Um, You know, on transit Twitter, people are often debating, oh, is the rail better than the bus? Uh, Sometimes, you know, business leaders or economic development folks talk about the image of world-class transit, sort of thinking that people want to see sort of shiny new rail systems. When you actually go to places that have world-class transit, you see, you know, high-capacity rail and bus rapid transit in the places that have the demand to support it. And then you see abundant bus service feeding into that. So they really do work together. 
I think a lot about uh, something, uh, you know, I mentioned in the book, uh, my colleague, David Bragdon, who's the executive director of Transit Center, often says that debating whether a train or a bus is better is like debating whether a jacket or a sweater is better. Hmm. You know, it, it depends on the context. It's all about, well, what's the weather like? What do you need? Right. And you really want to have both in your wardrobe, and you really want to have both in your transit toolbox. That's a great analogy. <laughs> um, how does uh, improving bus service improve equity within a community? Um, so most cities in the U.S., if you look at most cities in the U.S., there are huge inequities and there is you know, sort of a huge lack of access, lack of ability for folks to get around if they don't have access to a private vehicle. And so in most places, you see that even the majority of low-income households make the decision to buy a car eventually. But that turns out in so many places, in so many cases, to be financially ruinous. Um, Automobile debt has risen to record levels. Uh, researchers who look at car ownership among low-income people find that they're you know, often going in and out of car ownership because you get a ticket or your transmission breaks, and it's sort of back to square one. And that creates huge instability for people. So it's this, this real catch-22 where in too many places you need a car to get ahead, but then the car sort of litters your life with all these financial traps. And so that's why we need frequent, abundant transit access. And the bus is, you know, expanding bus service is one of the fastest and most cost-effective way to do that at scale. Uh, I think most U.S. cities really need and deserve a lot more frequent transit service than they have today. And so it, it sounds like you're saying that uh, improving transit service, we have, we have many other social programs that are important and necessary, but improving transit service really should be, it needs to be part of that conversation. Yeah, transit service is essential to the success of cities in so many different ways. Um, it is really hard if you don't have a good transit system for businesses to have access to workforce. It's really hard if you're a resident in those places to access not just jobs, but healthcare, you know, the ability to go to li the library, get to church, do your shopping, everything you need to live your life, right? There's this, um, there's this anecdote that I write about in the book. Uh, it's actually another researcher, uh, Kefui Atto from the City University of New York. He talks about this conversation that he observed when he was riding the bus in uh, the suburbs of New York City. And there's a plan there to uh, consolidate the county-run bus system with local buses. And people on the bus are talking about what this means for them. And the bus driver overhears this, and he says, wow, you guys have great ideas. You guys should go to City Hall, uh, tell your story, make sure that your input is heard. And you know, the people riding the bus just sort of shook their head because they knew that if they were to go to City Hall at that meeting, uh, which is at you know, 6.30 p.m., that by the time they were done testifying, there was no bus service running to take them back. Mm. So it's not 
just access to jobs. You know, transportation really enables access to civic participation and full participation in society in a lot of ways. And when it comes to participation, even accessing transit, you also can't really have that conversation without addressing um, the the way you make get to a bus or, or a train, and that's uh, sort of f- first mile, last mile, and also the state of our, our sidewalks, correct? Right. Every transit trip, or I should say nearly every transit trip, is also a walking trip. That's what the uh, survey data bears out when you look at national surveys and, and almost always when you look at local transit agency surveys, people who ride the bus are walking to and from those stops. And you can have a bus trip that is fast and frequent and reliable, but if you still have to cross an eight-lane road to get there, if you're like standing in the mud or on the shoulder of the road, if you don't have a shelter, if you're sort of fearing for your life as you walk to it, it's not going to feel like a great transit experience. And it's a huge challenge, of course, because transit agencies don't control the sidewalk, but you know, they have to, I think we all collectively have to face that challenge. Um, And I think about it in a couple of ways. Um, It, in a more sort of, uh, if you take a more sort of incremental approach, or if you think about what can an individual transit agency do, an agency like Metro or any other large agency, may often have a lot more planning capacity than some of the small municipalities that control sidewalks. And so the transit agency in uh, Portland, Oregon, for example, actually took the lead uh, doing this pretty involved study looking at areas in their network where sidewalks weren't good, but there was a lot of potential for increased transit ridership if those were fixed. And they were able to take this plan and make the case to municipalities that that's where they should focus their investments. And then I think in a more, um, I don't know, radical or ambitious sense, I actually think in the U.S. we really have to fundamentally rethink sidewalks. It is ridiculous that we, in so many cases, expect private property owners to maintain these while everything else in the right-of-way is a government responsibility. And you can see the consequences everywhere where you know, not just Houston, but places like Nashville and Austin and Denver, there are billion dollar plus gaps in the sidewalk network. And even in older cities like Philadelphia, curb ramps are often in terrible condition. And we just expect individuals to sue to remedy this instead of having a dedicated stream of funding to fix the problem. And since we're talking about huge change, momentous change, the the link between providing better bus service and addressing and making meaningful climate change uh, is very strong as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, transportation is now the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. As a country, we've made uh, enormous progress on energy on, you know, moving to sustainable energy sources. And you really haven't seen anything like that in the transportation sector. And when you sort of drill down a little bit deeper, you see that most transportation emissions are coming from 
private cars and trucks. And so that tells us that we're not going to solve it by just flying less. We're not going to solve it by building high-speed rail. As important as those things are, we're going to solve it by looking really squarely at how we get around day-to-day by building places that make it possible for us to drive less often and to make shorter trips. And we have to do that uh, on the one hand through you know land use, but also through providing great transportation options like convenient bus service. So in terms of increasing the number of trips or, or how, how often um, people would need to utilize public transit to make an impact in reducing that those greenhouse gases. Do you have some research on that? Or? Sure. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll cite one example, and the the example that I I happen to know actually comes from California. So the numbers might be a little different mm-hmm. uh, here in Texas. The California Air Resources Board found that for that state to meet its climate goals by 2050 every new private vehicle would have to be electric or zero emission, but also Californians would have to reduce their vehicle miles traveled by 15%. Um, So that's about, what, one in six? Mm -hmm. Um, That is very attainable if we build our cities so that people have more options. And... When we're talking about cities, uh, back to Houston, in your research, you did find, uh, and you use it as a a case study, that transit can work well here. Yeah, I mean, Houston Houston has a great track record. I mean, and I think what's really impressive about the Houston track record is that not only was the bus network redesign a great plan, you know, like the the numbers are really good. It brought access to frequent transit to a million new jobs and a million new households. So from all the technical planning standards, it's a good plan. But there was also a really good uh, political and stakeholder strategy. The folks at Metro and the consultant team that they brought on, you know, they had these really intense multiple day long planning sessions with stakeholders with major employers with civic organizations so that when the the draft network plan sort of hit the streets people weren't taken by surprise you know they had i think 180 meetings with elected officials local state and federal Um, and that's the kind of savviness that is needed to make big change to transit because ultimately these are political decisions and the political system we have uh, is really tilted towards uh, producing highway projects, car projects, transit riders often aren't uh, as organized. And so that coalition work ends up being incredibly important. And that's, you know, that's borne out by the experience in Houston. And, and, you, and you also talked about how what, what took place here in Houston in terms of the system reimagining uh, and some of the methods are in, in process that was followed, that that really um, started a momentum change that spread to other cities. That's right. The bus network redesign, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it's obviously not the first time that an agency is, has redesigned 
its network, but it was really inspiring to places like Columbus and Austin and Indianapolis and many others. You know, it's been, bus, the bus network redesign was called the hottest trend in transit by Governing Magazine. Um, and I think the reason for that is that a lot of, of cities, a lot of transit agencies realized that they were in the same boat that Houston was before the network redesign, that fundamentally the bus network hadn't changed in decades and it was really worth doing a sort of clean slate exercise to imagine drawing it from scratch and thinking about how the city had changed. As transit planners, we often claim that buses are nimble and flexible because you can redraw routes, but in too many places, you know, that's a flexibility that has gone completely unused. I was talking to um, Josh uh, Sikich, who worked on the Columbus bus network redesign, and, and he said that the impetus for that came from uh, the transit agency CEO looking at a map of the buses from the 1970s and realizing that it looked extremely similar to you know, the current or the, the network in Columbus at the time. Sounds a lot like the story here in Houston. Certainly. And Metro Next uh, bond referendum has been overwhelmingly approved by the voters. Uh, so now we have the moving forward plan. When we talk about transit reform, it's a continuing process. It's not something that just happens once, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think in a lot of ways, Metro Next opens a new chapter for transit in Houston. It means that um, folks at the agency are now going to be seriously looking at how to prioritize the bus on the street. How do you create rapid bus corridors? How do you use the design toolkit of bus-only lanes and transit signal priority and thinking about where you place stops? How do you combine all of that to create uh, an experience for folks that's fast and reliable? And I think in a lot of ways it's important to not forget or to continually relearn the lessons of the redesign. In a lot of places, um, there is backlash to bus priority projects, and you have to have a plan for that. You have to have a plan uh, to work with community organizations, with stakeholders, to anticipate the fact that you know people might get a little freaked out about the possibility of losing their parking, to anticipate that there may even be some folks who talk about the projects in very freighted ways, worry about well, who's transit going to bring to the neighborhood. You have to be prepared to anticipate that and sort of organize in advance of it. And it's also really important to think about how do you set up the public engagement processes so that they are not dominated by the people who tend to have the most time and power in the political process, uh, the folks who uh, are connected with the elected officials, the folks who get the you know, elected official newsletter so they know that the open house meeting is happening, the folks who have the time to come to a 6.30 p.m. meeting. How do you instead do public engagement in a more equitable way where you are going to where community is on their terms when it's convenient for them? How do you get input from people uh, who maybe don't have time to go to a meeting? That's all really, really important, and it helps demonstrate the benefits of what these bus priority projects are going to bring. 
And and along the same lines of addressing uh, that uh, backlash or or just helping the the communities to understand uh, how the bus priority works, you uh, discuss something called tactical Mm -hmm. transit. Mm -hmm. Tactical transit is one of the most exciting trends that I've seen uh, recently where uh, city governments and transit agencies in places like the Boston region and Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles have, instead of going through this multi-year planning process for every transit corridor, in a, in a bunch of places where there's sort of demonstrated demand for, uh, for bus service, they're putting paint on the ground or sometimes even cones, um, letting that pilot run for a few weeks, surveying riders and getting data from the corridor. And then often those bus lanes become permanent. You know, it's, it's bus lanes in a few weeks or months, not multiple years. And that's important because it does a few things. The first is it, it kind of flips the public process and the power dynamics in, a, in this way where when you set up a multi-year planning process, there are lots of opportunities for people to try and stop a project. When you do a, a tactical project, um, not only is the timeline shorter, but immediately thousands of bus riders are benefiting and they get really excited about the benefits. So now there's this built-in constituency who can talk to elected officials about what this means to them. And then at the same time, a lot of folks in the neighborhood realize, hey, the world didn't end. You know, traffic is still moving. There are other places to park. You know, it's really not the big deal that maybe I thought it might be. When you use the word tactical, it kind of speaks to uh, one of the other uh, mindset suggestions you you point out in your book and even in the subtitle, which is, quote unquote, winning the fight mm-hmm. for effective transit. Um, that that um, real reform requires a mindset and a commitment to uh, to really address these uphill battles? Yeah, I think we have to face, um, you know, I talk about the fact that we have to understand the technical attributes of what makes effective transit networks, but also how to navigate the networks of power. I'm an urban planner, and I, I feel like there were some aspects of my training that portrayed planning as this purely neutral technical exercise, then you actually get out into the field and you understand that sometimes it really is a fight. Sometimes, you know, homeowners or, or neighborhood groups or right or, um, you know, think tanks and ideologues are actually organizing against transit. And you have to be prepared to understand those dynamics, how to counter them and how to organize neighborhoods and communities to become allies. Um, And that is something that is worth thinking about within public agencies. How do you set up processes in ways that are more strategic and help the neighborhoods who you know are predisposed to transit? Um, One sort of uh, tip that uh, I heard from Kurt Lurson and also (laughs) Christoph Spieler, former board member at Metro is this idea that sometimes bus projects don't get a lot of attention because the way you improve buses is thousands of little projects. You know, it's moving a stop here, it's putting in a queue jump there, it's, you know, each one of those individually maybe isn't exciting to an elected official, but you package them all together into something like a bus network redesign 
or a pipeline of quarter projects, all of a sudden you have this package which uh, can really grab people's attention. And speaking of attention, um, could you share with us a little bit about how you became so interested in public transit? Yeah, um, well, I've always been interested in cities, but I think one of the experiences that really radicalized me before I really had any inkling that I was going to be working in transportation was having the opportunity to study abroad in London. Um, This was right after congestion pricing had happened in London. And as part of the, the lead up to that, London really invested a lot in buses. They understood that if they were going to charge drivers to enter downtown, they had to really uh, improve the transit alternatives that were available. So they carpeted the city with red bus lanes. They dramatically increased service. And so my experience there was just something that I really hadn't experienced uh, before in the U.S., where buses just seemed ubiquitous. It almost always seemed like the best way to get somewhere was on the bus. They were arriving at all times. And it was, I mean, even before, um, really, I think the smartphones became completely mainstream, it felt like a very seamless experience. So that, I think, was really eye-opening and opened my eyes to what is possible with buses. And and, and in terms of what is possible you believe it is it is possible here in the U.S. To, I do. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's funny. Everywhere I go and where I praise something that a local transit agency is doing, someone local is going to complain that it's not quite good enough. I mean, that's always <laughs> the case. We always have to keep getting better, sure. right? But I think that there are a lot of really great and really inspiring examples of cities making strides on transit. And I write about a number of them in the book. Um, In Indianapolis in 2016, voters agreed to increase the income tax. That's eventually going to increase bus service by 70% in Indianapolis. That's a huge increase in Mm -hmm. access. Um, In Seattle, they've gone over the past, uh, you know, five or six years from having 25% of households within walking distance of frequent transit to 70% of households. That also is transformative in the ability uh, of people to get around. Um, so I do think it, it is possible in the U.S., and there are many people in the U.S. who are working to make that happen. And speaking of many people, there are many transit riders. You talk about percentages uh, in terms of people that utilize transit. There are some that use it every day as their primary source of transportation. Mm-hmm. But when you open up the the uh, conversation to include everyone who ever uses transit, it becomes a much larger percentage of the population. That's right. That's right. We, um, I think sometimes we often undercount the transit constituency because we are so used to looking at data sources like the census or the American Community Survey, um, which asks people to talk about um, what is their primary commute mode. And in surveys like that, you know, if you're someone who works a couple of jobs and you drive to one three days a week and you take transit, uh, you know, 
two days, you're not counted as a transit rider. If you are someone who drives to work but takes transit to the grocery store or takes transit on certain you know, recreational trips, you're not counted as a transit rider. And we have to have surveys that have a fuller picture of how people get around. Um, at basically every transit agency, there's a, uh, there's a group of people who take transit for many different trips. And there's this much larger pool of people who take transit a few times a week or who take transit occasionally. And so it turns out that transit is actually quite relevant to uh, many people in most cities to a much greater extent that we, than we give it credit for. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of talk about the graying of America, and obviously as people age or society ages, if we don't prioritize uh, better buses, you know, what does the future look like to you? Sure. Um, I think there are a few, that's a really important question, and I think there are a few different aspects to that. Um, I think one is that as the, as you know, there are more people in America who uh, can't drive or choose not to drive. We are, I mean, honestly, I think really headed into a crisis if we don't have great transportation alternatives. Um, there is so much risk for older people to feel socially isolated and losing access to transit is a huge determinant of that. We have to have uh, convenient transit so that uh, folks who can't drive have access to everything that they need. So they have reliable access to healthcare, but also, you know, just reliable access to meet friends and meet family, and you know, really actually have the chance to enjoy, you know, retirement and the golden years. Um, and I think it's really important for transit agencies to engage with older Americans, um, with people with disabilities, and those are not the same thing, but there is some overlap. There's a story I mention in the book, um, Metro Transit, the transit agency in the Twin Cities, uh, has done this program to, the Better Bus Stops program, to rethink how they site bus shelters and where they put them. And there's always this, um, debate when you're talking about things like removing bus stops to improve service, there's always a concern that uh, if you space bus stops too far apart, that that's going to make it harder for people who have difficulty walking or using a wheelchair. And what the folks at that agency actually found when they engaged with uh, a, a number of uh, disability rights groups was that a lot of folks said that it actually would be okay for them to walk or to roll a little bit further to a bus stop if there was shelter and a bench, that the real issue is not the walk, but the fact that after the walk, they needed somewhere where they could comfortably sit. And that's the sort of thing that, I think that's a sort of input that you don't get unless as an agency you're really engaging with riders. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think it's a really important issue. We talk so much about the need to age in place, um, and too many of the the places where those people are aging, they they may end up, um, I think, isolated. And we have to try to avoid that. 
Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I guess I'll just say that, you know, I'm really, uh, I'm really gratified to be speaking on this podcast in Houston. I think Houston was one of the first places that I researched that helped me understand the importance of thinking about power, thinking about strategy in tandem with, you know, actually producing a great technical transit plan. And Houston has a lot of lessons to teach other places. You know, all that said, I think folks at Houston have to keep relearning those lessons as we go into the next chapter of Houston's transit future. Metro Next is really exciting, but you know, right now it's a plan and turning it into reality is going to require more coalition building. It's going to require more public engagement. It's going to require more thinking about how to do all of that in a way that is equitable, that is strategic. Um, I'm really excited to see it happen. And so are we, and we're excited to we'll be ready for your next book for that. <laughs> 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 Stephen Higashide, Director of Research at Transit Center and author of Better Buses, Better Cities. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Now that you've listened to this episode, hopefully while riding Metro, we'd love to hear what would make your bus better. Message us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Metro Houston. And if you enjoyed this episode of The Next Stop, you can check out all the episodes at ridemetro.org. If you want to make sure you never miss one, subscribe. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or SoundCloud. And if you could please do me a favor and give us a rating and review on one of those apps, it'll help us out a bunch. Special thanks to producer Monica Russo, who helped with this episode. I'm Laura Whitley. Thanks for listening. Until next time, drive less, do more with Metro.